she was the most beautiful dog, the prettiest dog. And wherever we went, girls would stop and just go, oh my God, look at that dog. I can remember once at the Victoria Market, one woman and her mother stopped me and said, that dog is ridiculous. The mother literally seriously said, I will hold him, you grab the dog and run. And I said, no, over my dead body. Then another time we were in Prague, sitting outside of a cafe, and they were doing some building across the way. There was some scaffolding across the road and all these, it's bloody in the middle of summer and lots of shorts and arms going on across the road. Lots of legs and arms, you know what I'm saying? So the boys break for lunch. Three of those sluggers come crossing the road and going, oh my God. One of them says, mate, how much for the dog? And I go, I beg your pardon. They go, how much for the dog? And I said, um, well, she's actually not for sale, but you know, is there anything else? Well, we've been watching you for three hours, buddy, and that dog is a chick magnet, and we want your dog. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, God, she was funny. She was a showstopper, honestly. This is Gersel, and these stories are a world away from his childhood, growing up in suburban Melbourne with his Turkish mum and siblings. Dogs are only now becoming part of Turkish life. Having said that, it's still a very bourgeois thing to own a dog. Actually, the word for dog is kind of like a swear. The word for dog is köpek. And when you use the word köpek, it's like calling someone a dirty pig. For instance, my sister, my older sister, came back a couple of years ago from Cyprus, where we originate from. And she said, oh, my God, you've got that Köpek in this house. You know, <laughs> no. So it's very different. But we didn't have a dog, but we pretended to have dogs. We pretended to be normal. Being a wog was obviously different and not easy. You used to look at your Australian neighbours and friends at school and kind of try and emulate them. You know, and they all had dogs, they had gardens, they had well-trimmed houses and la 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 la. And the wogs were completely different, whereas, you know, the white, white kids have roses in their front yards and we'd have olives and lemon trees. If you don't already know, a wog is old Aussie slang, meaning people who migrated here from Europe after World War II. From Italy, Greece and Turkey in particular. Gersel was a school kid in the 1970s when wogs like him copped a lot of prejudice. I can remember there was this kind of red-coloured Alsatian a few doors up and I'd just borrow him and I used to tie a bit of rope around him and pretend he was my dog and walk around. But everyone in the street knew what was going on. I can remember actually cutting daffodils from someone's garden and pushing them in the ground of our house and tying the dog up outside our house so we were really normal. We had a dog and we had daffodils. <laughs> you know, things like that. I know it's sweet and sad. I'm Michelle Ransom-Hughes and this is Oh My Dog. It was winter in Melbourne when Gersel and I talked across his kitchen table. A little poodle with bright eyes was curled in his lap. I hope you'll make yourself comfortable and take in the story of Gersel, Ellie and Kate Bush. <laughs> Ellie's the hero of the story. She was Gersel's first real dog. She became his road buddy. She was a surfer and a farm dog, and she turned out to be a bit of a miracle worker. All of this in the unlikely form of a little red poodle. 
sharing life with an artist who came within a whisker of death. As for Kate Bush, I don't think I need to tell you who she is, but the story can't be told without her. Gersel was a kid when he last saw his father. His mum bought his dad a one-way ticket back to Cyprus and got on with raising the family herself. She was a talented dressmaker and Gersel learned how to sew by helping her at night with piecework. As a schoolboy, Gersel was a soprano singer and a dreamer. He helped his mum keep house by cooking and cleaning and he also became a champion sprinter by running from the boys at school who wanted to beat him up for being different. School was hell for him, save for one or two teachers. When I was 17, 16 or 17, my mother said, we've got to go back to Cyprus and see your grandmother, my mother. She said, I think she's going to die and we've got to go and see before she dies. And so we had to take a lot of time off school. My English literature teacher, who saw my talent, said to me, while you're gone, I want you to struggle, but read this book. And it was Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Well, I took it and I did struggle, but there I was. I can remember getting to Cyprus and sitting. I'll never forget this moment. My granny was divine in this tiny little village on the coast of Cyprus. She used to wrap for me in a tea towel, a, a portion of cheese, a quarter of bread, some salami and some other cheeses and some tomatoes and olives. Wrap those up in the cloth and then I'd go out to the coast and sit under this orange tree in an orange grove because our family grew oranges and reading this book. And I used to take with me my grandmother's transistor radio. And there I was trying to read this book. And then I could just get this scratchy little signal from BBC World. And they said, oh, here's this extraordinary new girl. And uh, we don't really know much about her, but she's just got an amazing voice. And her name's Kate Bush. And here's her song, Wuthering Heights. There I am with the book in my hand. And I hear this voice just floating out across the sea. Everything was changed after that. Everything. Like, everything was changed after that. Finished the book. Got the album. First thing I did. (laughs) And, um, yeah, well, that just started a lifelong passion with her. With this new vision of life beyond the suburbs, Gersel found his way to study fashion and design at art school. Then he made a living working in every creative department of Melbourne's film and TV industry and loved it. When the intensity of that world burned him out after a decade or so and depression started creeping in, he shifted gears and reinvented himself, opening a boutique. I wasn't a very successful homosexual in the sense that there was a culture and a gay life 
and that consisted of some certain pubs and it was a very small world in Melbourne there were certain pubs that the gays would go to or some nightclubs and you know that club life never really resonated with me or that kind of dance world or the party scene never really was me I was too sensitive I found the music too objectionable too loud and the gays too vicious I didn't match the criteria of the physique or the typical everything was wrong I'd never had a boyfriend I used to long to have partners or meet guys and my gay friends would take me out to nightclubs and I'd watch them all score and I'd just be going what the hell you know but what I did notice was that travel took me out of Melbourne and I had a lot more luck overseas Enchanted by Southeast Asia, he walked away from the arts and found steady work with a travel company. The depression he'd been struggling with in Melbourne seemed to lift. It was a fantastic time in my life. Oh my God, it was awesome. I'd take people from, from the north of Vietnam to the very south of Malaysia, across to Bali and back to Bangkok was where I was based. It was extraordinary. The 90s was a great time to see Southeast Asia. So basically what happened was that I became very promiscuous because I'd had a very protected, um, not a very rich sex life as a, as a young adult. And I was so kind of sheltered and innocent. And uh, there I was out in the world and, and the men were beautiful. And I became very, unfortunately, stupidly, very promiscuous in that time and exposed myself. I kind of suspected, you know, as a gay man at that time, mind you, HIV had gone through the 80s and, and I think I was very naive. After three fabulous years in Asia, he can't ignore it, he's ill and he knows he has to come home. Gersel says every gay man of his generation has a plan. A plan for the day, the HIV test, comes back positive. I had my plan, which was never tell mum because she's Turkish, dramatic and crazy. The world is going to end and the sky's going to fall and I'm going to have to deal with that rather than myself. So I thought, no, don't put her through that. On a trip to the Blue Mountains, Gersel gives blood for an HIV test. On the doctor's forms, under next of kin, he puts down his mother's phone number. Remember, this is the days before mobiles. Then he goes back to Castlemaine and waits. And the doctor rang that phone number and my mother picked up the phone and being the woman that she was, she got it out of him. So then she went into panic mode rang all of my friends, oh my God, he's going to die, he's going to die. All of this is happening behind my back. I, I'm at home living with a friend and the phone rings and it's the doctor from the Blue Mountains. I say, how did you get this number? Oh, I, I rang your mother's place and she gave it to me. And he tells me, my heart sinks, hang up. It's confirmed he's HIV positive. 20 minutes later, it's him again on the phone. He said, I've got to tell you something even worse. And I said, what? And he said, your mother knows. And I said, great. Well, <clears throat> you've just changed everything. Uh, it was just terrible. 
I was in panic, I was in shock, and then one of my girlfriends rang up and she said, your mother has literally told everyone you know. Oh my God, I was so humiliated. Because I had my plan. My plan was to be private, select a few people, perhaps try some alternative medicines, start the journey. But of course, I just felt like I was out of control. The whole thing was taken away. Sitting right there when he got that diagnosis, giving him all her weight, was a dog. I was living with my gorgeous friend, Nolene Blizzard, one of the most marvellous women I've ever met. And we had a dog between us called Nikki. And Nikki was a kind of silky-haired border collie. Beautiful dog, beautiful nature, smart as a whip. She blessed our house. So, of course, after my diagnosis, I thought, you know what, I'm getting out of Melbourne. I'm going to go and get away from all of these people. I just needed to run. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get myself a dog and we're going to go to the country and then we'll see where we go from there. And a very generous friend of mine who who was an actor, very successful actor, had a heap, a heap of money, bought me a gorgeous car and said, you do what you want and get out. So I bought a 1964 Valiant Safari station wagon and which was pale blue and gorgeous interior. It was in excellent condition. It hummed like a beast. And um, a friend of mine had some property in Castle, Maine, and I thought, I'll just go and stay there for a while until I can work things out. The phone rang. It was a friend, another friend of ours, and he said, Gersel, I hear you've been kind of looking for a dog. And we've just had a litter, but it's an extraordinary dog, and she's the last of the litter. I said, what is it? What is this dog that you're talking about? He said, it's a toy poodle. And I said, oh, come on. Look, I'm going to live in the country. I'm looking for a border collie and she's got to be, you know, she's going to be a farm dog, okay? But thanks for the offer. He said, no, look, this dog is really special. And every time this dog comes to me, I think of you. We're having a party. Come and meet her. The party was the last thing I wanted to go to. He went, of course he went. And the puppy was in the laundry, being kept away from the crowd. Long story short, I go and see her in the laundry, shut the laundry door. And she was a little toy red poodle. She, was as, she could fit in your two little hands like that. <laughs> I just looked at her. Cutest thing. Of course, you know, if you love dogs, you love dogs. Three times in that party... Amongst all those people, she escaped three times and found her way to me and jumped up on my lap. Okay, it's a sign. So I took her. She came home with me. Nolan freaked out. She said, what the hell have you done? You've got a toy poodle. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I know. I know. I know I've got a toy poodle. Two weeks or maybe three weeks later, I took the Valiant Safari out and had her fitted for sheepskin covers on back and front. It was just like this sheepskin paradise for little Ellie. And she just thought she was in heaven in that car. Well, of course, we arrived at this little country house and she was mine and we were together. And this little dog and I just went on the hugest adventure. 
In case you're wondering, Gersel's doctors did prescribe him courses of drugs, but feeling physically quite well now, he was loath to take them. He'd watched on in the 80s as the AIDS crisis was made worse by Big Pharma. He'd seen many people die. So until the drugs improved, he placed his faith in retreating to the country, growing organic food, living cleanly, and keeping company with the one and only Ellie. But of course, I had no idea what a nightmare a puppy would be, because it's like having a child. I used to put her out at four in the morning and say, look, if you want to play, go play. I was terribly negligent. But I'd get up at like eight and go, oh my God, the dog's out. I'm such a bad father. And I'd go out and try and find her. And I'd walk down this little lane, dirt road, and I'd see the most extraordinary things. Like down at the end of this lane, there was this beautiful water tower and there was a donkey tethered in this tiny paddock. And I'd see Ellie up on her hind legs and this donkey literally leaning down and they're kind of kissing each other. Or, you know, she'd find the pony down the way and she'd be smelling and wandering the paddock with this little pony. So it was like a children's picture book. I mean, she had a whole nother world outside of me and there was some sheep across the way and she'd go and see them there were goats and she had this absolute menagerie and they all adored her she'd kiss them they'd kiss her back it was adorable i did a few drawings of her just with this beautiful old horse that she befriended and they'd just go for a little wander you know when they later moved to a farmhouse in the middle of a 500 acre cattle farm Ellie proved herself as handy as any farm dog, in spite of how she looked. She was only about as big as a rabbit. And she was red, curly-haired, floppy-eared. And, um, of course, she didn't have any of the poodle haircut, but I was very good with a pair of scissors, so I used to give her her own little cut. I used to kind of cut her like something like a terrier, so I'd trim her little ears down and she'd have a moustache like an Airedale. So she kind of looked like a terrier. She wasn't as mincy as one would think a poodle would be. And I remember I used to open the back gate. Ellie would bolt down to the dam and she'd start rounding up the cattle. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's just like a border collie. She'd literally gather them and corner them. What was hysterical was that the grass was taller than her. And so she'd jump over the grass, hop all the way down to the bloody dam. But I remember one day we went down and we walked across this creek and I saw some kangaroos up the way and I thought, oh, shit, we'd better not go there. She'll chase them and she'll try and round them up and she'll get whacked by one of their tails. So we went up to the top of this rise. So I'm sitting up there on a rock and she's sitting beside me. And then this group of kangaroos came by. This big male with a few females was just standing in front of me, thumping his chest like this. I'm thinking, oh, fuck, we are done. And he's throwing his hands out. And I'm thinking, is he scaring me away? Looks like he's pointing at something. His hands are flying up. He's punching his chest and his hands are flying up. And I look up and not two feet above my head is a hawk circling Ellie thinking, there's my lunch. So I I just grabbed this branch that was beside me, waved it around and he went. And then the kangaroos passed and we went home. In this fashion, idyllic farm life and skippy subplots three years passed. 
Gersel was still avoiding drug therapies and staying well. But for his mental health, he needed to escape the Victorian winter. So he and Ellie loaded up the Valiant and pointed it north, headed for the surf beaches of Sydney and beyond. There I'd be in the car, hand on, one hand on the wheel, one hand on the, on the backrest, and Ellie would either be right next to me or just sprawled out the way dogs... Do you know how a dog can actually stretch itself out from point to point? She'd be like that. She was the queen of Sheba in that car. Absolutely. I don't know if you've ever been inside of a 64 Valiant Safari, but it's very big and it's bench seats front and back. And so that's bench seats covered in fluffy white sheepskin, which is like a paradise for a poodle. It was a push button auto, nice and open down the front of the seat. Even the back, uh, the, the, the rest that you lean your back on, that's nice and square. So Ellie could sit on that square if she was waiting in the car for me, if I had to go to shops or something. Back seat was the same, which used to fold down and that became our bed. I'd have Kate Bush blaring um, and we would be listening to the latest album, The Red Shoes, which came out in 93. She had a big break from 93 to 2005 and I'll get to that. The thing is about Kate Bush albums is that for anyone who's into her, they kind of become the punctuation marks for your life's course ellie grew up with kate absolutely like i could actually put on a few of kate's songs and calm ellie down if she needed to be quiet for a while songs like moments of pleasure or um this woman's work beautiful piano i think kate's at her best when she's just piano and voice without all the big production. But, um, yeah, we went everywhere. We went to Queensland and all, all, all through the east, basically for up and down the east coast of Australia. Brilliant car. We'd park on a cliff and watch the ocean. One dreadful... I'll never... Oh, Ellie, I'm so sorry. I'll never forget one night. I was so sound asleep and the storm was blowing... And I used to leave the side door ajar for her so she could jump out in the night and go out and do her business. And she'd jump back in, but the wind had blown the door shut and she was stuck out in the storm. The poor dear was out in this dreadful, dreadful storm. And I got out in the morning going, where's my dog, where's my baby, oh my God. And she was just a, a, a wretched, shivering, wet little poppet hiding behind the front wheel. Uh, but anyway, she wouldn't have left me for quids and she was my constant companion. They made regular trips back to the farm and to the doctors. But with each blood test, things began to look more grim. Look, it wasn't long before I had to come back to Melbourne because I got a bit crook. You know, I had a, a few close calls. When Gersel became gravely ill, he'd be secluded in a private room of a special ward at a highly specialised medical facility. He had the best of care, but he didn't have Ellie. Ellie would have to stay with friends. Dogs weren't allowed, but they'd sneak her in. Because Ellie was so small and portable that I could tuck her into a bag and get into any shop or any restaurant, even the cinema. So no dogs allowed was basically something that we didn't even abide to at all. Um, look, she was like me. I always loved breaking rules. 
And I could put her under my jumper and no one would even know she was there. Anyway, once she learned where I was, if I was in the hospital's bed on a bloody drip at 61 kilos and nearly checking out of the hotel, Ellie could jump out of the car, bolt past the receptionist, past all of the doctors and nurses, and they wouldn't even know something had happened. They're just like, was that, was that something that went by? Find my room, jump up on my bed and just sit on my chest and give me chin kisses and just honestly that girl you know the doctors were confounded by me because I still refused the medication they were confounded they couldn't work it out because everything looked crook that I was I was going what do you put it down to I don't know I just think I'm resilient and I think it was her I think it was Ellie I don't want to overstate it, but I just think that dogs, not only do they sense when you're unwell, I think they can actually heal. It was 2005, and there was Gersel, seriously ill, when with the most impeccable timing, Kate Bush releases a new album, her first in 12 years. It was called Ariel. Such a stunning piece of music. So the first side is just a series of five songs unrelated. The second side is conceptual. It's from morning till night till morning. And it's birdsong and it's beautiful. I had my computer with Ariel, the album, on loop. 24-7. Didn't stop. And Ellie with her regular daily visits. Ariel was on a loop. Ellie was on my heart, and I call it a miracle, but do you know what? That happened three times, and over the next three years, I was hospitalised for different conditions, and each time was a really close call, and each time, that album and that dog were there. And jump fast forward past that, I got so strong and well after all of that. Did you see that you were going to be well? Did you think that? Yeah, I didn't think I was going to die ever. They were convinced, absolutely convinced. I still go back to that. I mean, I'm so well. And also by then, the drugs had changed and they started me on the newer drugs. Now, the new gen drugs are amazing. You just, but they didn't think I was going to bounce back because my poor body had been through so much. But I kind of knew, I just kind of think I'm going to be like the rest of my family. We don't die till we're 99. (laughs) Gersel's living proof that you can be well and live well and be HIV positive. He could quite feasibly live to be 99. Ellie did something comparable in dog terms. She went until she was 17, which is a long haul for a dog. I got a part-time job and started painting a lot. We were in a really good place, reconnected with a lot of old friends and things were doing really well. Ellie's getting older and she'd just still go with me. We still take long to car trips and we still go camping a lot. But um, she's getting blind. You can see the cataracts moving across the eyes and the eyes are getting white and cloudy and she's losing her puppy hair and she's going bald. And then finally, <laughs> finally she goes deaf. 
So Helen went from... No, Helen. Did you hear what I just called her? I called her Helen, my Freudian slip. Because I used to call her Helen Keller because she was deaf and blind and she used to bounce off things. Isn't that awful? But look, we loved each other and she took it in great humour. <laughs> so my friends thought I was awful. But she knew where she was. She knew where her bowl was. And I always said to myself, look, you're going to keep going, Ellie, until you let me know. When you're not right, you're going to let me know. And she was my best friend. She went through everything. Every, every single thing we went through. She knew everything. She knew every Kate Bush song in the world. I didn't need to speak to her. We'd had a non-verbal communication, which is why I think that she coped so well and went for so long as a deaf and blind dog. Because our communication was non-verbal, it got to the point where she could sense, if we were about to, for instance, if we went to visit somebody, she'd know where we were. She'd run out and run to their door and wait for me to get there. And she'd run and say hello to those people. Or if we weren't going to the doctors or if we were going to Safeways or if we were going to anywhere, she knew where she was. Isn't that extraordinary? Um, but yeah, so I just knew because she was really failing. I'd come home from work and she'd slept all day. And that's okay because you know, let sleeping dogs lie. And, you know, what better way to spend your senior years than to just sleep all day? And God damn it, in 2011, Kate Bush writes an album and the second song is about an old dog. It's like Kate's right on time as well. The line is, the dog is sleeping. His legs are frail now, but when he dreams, he runs. You know that little twitch that you can see in a sleeping dog's legs? You just know they're running along a beautiful beach or running through a wood, or chasing a stick that mummy or daddy's thrown or... You know what I mean? For years, Ellie persisted like this, Gersel's constant companion. Then, in 2014, the announcement Gers had waited his whole life to hear... Kate Bush will give her first concert in 35 years. He buys a ticket for London and counts down the days. Beneath his excitement is fear for Ellie. She's now 17 years old and fading fast. Ellie was really crook and I knew. So I pretended to go to work one day and look through the window and I left her in the middle of the floor and I've got tables and chairs and furniture and... There's a bowl of water and her food. And I looked through the window and I sat by the window and watched her for an hour and a half try to find the water bowl. She was really lost. And that's when I knew. And she was just hanging on for me. But I kind of had a word with her and said, darling, I've got to go and see Kate. So you've got to go. And I want you to go. So... We took her in that day and there's a beautiful little old frail body and she got the injection and the vet was so beautiful. She said to me, Gersel, do you want, we can keep Ellie and we can cremate her and send you there. Ashes, I just the whole idea of sending her body away to somebody else was completely out of the question. I just said, no, she's my 
dog. And I took her little cold body that was so limp and wrapped it in a towel and brought her home, laid her out on the table and got her brush and groomed her, anointed her with some oil and cleaned her, bathed her, clipped her nails, made her look as pretty as possible, wiped her eyes and talking to her the whole time, of course, Kate Bush music. And, um, and then I thought, okay, what do we do now? I'm not just going to put you in the dirt. So I had a, I had a shoe box and she just so small. And then I had a beautiful piece of Cambodian silk that I bought back from Cambodia years before, rich orange, gold, red, and lined this shoe box with it and laid her in that beautiful box lined in silk, which was now her shroud and flowers of the season, daffodils, calendula, jonquils. And then I folded the silk over and the lid came down on the box and we drove out to Castlemaine where we used to live and went to a friend's house and under a beautiful tree, uh, there were other pets buried under that tree and uh, I'd carved her a beautiful headstone and buried her. God, she smelt beautiful. I anointed her with um, scented oils as well, frankincense as well. Do you know, there was nothing hideous or awful or sad. I cried a little bit, but I think the process of anointing her body and burying her was kind of an elixir against shocking grief. It was part of a process that took me into a place of understanding and one that I am a gardener and that she was buried, she'd gone to earth so beautifully safe and warm in the silk. She'd gone to earth. I don't know. I don't know. I think something about anointing that body and treating it the way I did made me more in that experience of decomposition and death and dying. Honestly, it was just the most beautiful, heavenly thing. And then two weeks later, I got on the plane and flew to London and saw Kate, who was no longer the 20-year-old waif in leotards, but this big busty, woman in a caftan with her now grown son and bare feet completely earthed and her arms stretched out like an earth mother and I just thought this is complete this whole thing is complete and do you know what I did after that I got on a plane and went back to Cyprus and I went back to that tree And sat there with the book in my lap and a photo of Valley. <laughs> Sorry. I, you know what? The, when I buried her, it was like she was buried in me and there was no separation. There was no separation. It was, it was wonderful. 
When Gersel and I met, he and his new poodle pup had been together just a few weeks. Little Scout sat in his lap all through this story, listening quietly. Already their bond was true. So this is the second time around with a dog. And there are little things that you forget that come back to you when you've got a little dog in your life. Like, for instance, if you're snuggling up on the couch and the dog jumps up on the couch, there's a moment where they'll make themselves comfortable, they might make a couple of turns, and then once they're comfortable and they give you all their weight and perhaps the chin's on your arm, there's this exhale, there's this beautiful little puff of contentment and those little beautiful little moments that I've been living without for a while. I I remember all those little things, just that little puff of air. Gersel, I'm so thankful that you asked me to help tell the story of Ellie. Wishing you and Scout many happy years. There's a song for Ellie by Saya. It'll play in just a few moments. But as this is the final episode of Season 2 of Oh My Dog, I thought I'd encourage you to take a look at our website. You'll find a lot of dog photos, transcripts of all the episodes, and links to -to up-to-date HIV information and organisations. If you're in a position to support us financially to help make more episodes, you can also do that there. If you're not, but you like what you hear, please tell your friends to listen or give us a shout out on social media. Oh My Dog is written and produced by me, Michelle Ransom Hughes, for Alongside Radio. Sound design, music, and mixing throughout seasons one and two have been by the incomparable Sayer Vogel. Thank you so much, Sayer. Thanks also to Mish and Lee Armstrong, to Dylan, to Simon, to Rebecca Armstrong and Ali Mobs. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.